Good afternoon to all for this uh, Sutta reading. A new face here. My name is Damasia. My first teaching appointment in Perth. Ajahn Brahm's strategy is he sends his monks when they get more senior first to faraway places. So if you turn out a failure, no one here will know. We've been to Singapore, Venerable Ahmadi and myself. Now the first time here. And the Sutta I, I thought I would like to read out is number 54 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Potaliya Sutta. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the country of the Anguttarapans at a town of theirs named Apana. Aha. Is this maybe the place where the Anguttara Nikaya was spoken? Anguttarapan? No. No, it, it's just a coincidence. The Anguttara Nikaya is not named after a certain place, but it just means um, increasing subjects from 1 to 11. The first book, 1, and then up to 11 subjects in the 11th book. So just a coincidence by the name. It has nothing to do with the Anguttara Nikaya. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Apana for arms. When he had wandered for arms in Apana and had returned from his arms round, after his meal, he went to a certain grove for the day's abiding. Having entered the grove, he sat down at the root of a tree. And to stop here, this is something which always inspires me very much to see the simplicity of the Lord Buddha's lifestyle. Most likely at this stage, he is already the most famous teacher in India at that time. He would have the most uh, powerful Maharajas bowing at his feet and they would be very happy to supply him with everything. But his lifestyle would be just that of a normal bhikkhu. He's just living like, almost like a normal bhikkhu, going around, eating the food, whatever people give him on his arms round. And then in the afternoon, he's not sitting in the palace or not even in his coat. He just goes out into the forest and chooses a tree where he spends the afternoon meditation. So very simple lifestyle, like an ordinary bhikkhu, although he's so famous and uh, the most respected person in India at that time. Potaliya, the householder, while walking and wandering for exercise, wearing full dress with parasol and sandals, also went to the grove, and having entered the grove, he went to the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. Already those days, they were walking for exercise. I think it has become fashionable now again. <laughs> so, so you see, in 2,500 years, nothing new really comes up. And walking is always recommended by the Lord Buddha. Often people have this idea... Uh, meditation is sitting, sitting in full lotus seat. But actually one can make walking meditation the main subject of one's meditation. But anyway, Potali is doing it more for exercise, not so much for meditation. And uh, after exchanging greetings with the Buddha, when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he stood at one side. The Blessed One said to him, There are seats, householder. Sit down if you like. When this was said, the householder Potalia thought, the recluse Gotama addresses me as householder, and angry and displeased, he remains silent. But I think I have to explain here this address, householder, sounds a little bit rude in English, but it's a fairly normal way of addressing people in Pali, in, in the Indian languages, even nowadays. They, they don't use these very polite formulas like in English. In English you say maybe, could you do this, or would you mind maybe doing that? But in, in the Indian languages, even nowadays, they use, for example, the imperative, or they address people in this way. If I address you here in the afternoon, welcome householders to our Sutta meeting. It sounds pretty odd. <laughs> but 
But the reason that Potadya is upset here is, is not the address householder. That is completely normal. The Buddha would address a Brahmin just by calling him Brahmin, would address a Maharaja by calling him Maharaja, would address monks just simply by bhikkhu, just monk. And that was normal at that time. But Potadya gets upset because he considers himself to be a kind of monk, a kind of recluse, a person who has given up the world life. That comes up a little bit later. A second time, the Blessed One said to him, there are seats, householder, sit down if you like. And a second time, the householder, Potalia, thought, the recluse Gotama addresses me as householder, and England is pleased. He remained silent. A third time, the Blessed One said to him, there are seats, householder, sit down if you like. When this was said, the householder Potalia thought, the recluse Gotama addresses me as householder, and angry and displeased, he said to the Blessed One, Master Gotama, it is neither fitting nor proper that you address me as householder. Householder, you have the aspects, marks, and signs of a householder. Nevertheless, Master Gotama, I have given up all my works and cut off all my affairs. It is strange here that he actually expects the Buddha to recognize this, because if you come with a parasol, that's actually in ancient India uh, a symbol of very high status. Monks wouldn't be allowed to use parasols. Um, the Nikaya were ordained in Sri Lanka. They don't even use normal umbrellas. We had a kind of palm leaf umbrella because they take the vineyard so strictly. So on Portalia is wandering around, dressed in white, wearing sandals and having even a parasol. So how could the Buddha possibly recognize him as a, as a recluse, as an ascetic, as someone who has gone forth. And you wonder, maybe Potalia is one of these persons who are checking out the psychic abilities. Sometimes you have people, they, they think a teacher might have psychic abilities, and then they always try to check them out. Can he read my thoughts? <laughs> and that may be a case like this here. He expects the Buddha to notice he is a recluse and has given up his affairs, although he is wearing the normal dress of a householder. The Buddha asks him back, in what way have you given up all your works, householder, and cut off all your affairs? And I find it very fascinating how the Buddha here avoids getting into any kind of conflict. He could have said straight away, the way you are doing it, that is not really giving up. or that, that is, You don't really know what is giving up. You, you're not really a recluse. But he doesn't do any like this. If you come back to a person with that, such a severe statement like, the way you are doing it isn't right, or you haven't really given up, and the person will just close up. He becomes angry and upset. So the Buddha is just asking this question, in what way have you given up all your works? Giving him a chance to explain. So he says now, Master Gotama, I have given up all my wealth, grain, silver, and gold to my children as their inheritance. Without advising or admonishing them, I live merely on food and clothing. That is how I have given up all my works and cut off all my affairs. So there's actually a little bit of point to it. He is no longer controlling his money. He still wears the normal dress of a layperson, but he has given all his uh, material possessions to his children. The only condition is that they look after him for addressing him and feeding him. And it seems he doesn't even interfere with the way they are managing all this property. Householder, the cutting off of affairs as you describe it is one thing. But in the nobleman's discipline, the cutting off of affairs is different. And again, the Buddha very skillfully um, kind of refutes him here. He doesn't actually really refute him. He just says, it's different the way we are doing it here. If you tell a person the way you are doing it, that's wrong. 
or you don't really know, you haven't got a clue what it means to cut off all affairs. You haven't got a clue what it means to, to give up all work. If you say this, the person will close up. He will not open up for further instruction. He just gets upset. So the Buddha only makes this statement, the way you are doing it is one way, but we are here in the noble discipline. We do it in a different way. This means he doesn't feel offended. He doesn't feel rejected. And so he starts asking, what is the cutting off of affairs like in the noble one's discipline, venerable sir? It would be good, venerable sir, if the blessed one would teach me the Dhamma, showing what the cutting off of affairs is like in the noble one's discipline. And here we have a change in address. You notice before Potalia addressed the Buddha as the recluse Gotama, Master Gotama. These are just the normal terms of polite conversation between equals, roughly equals in India. Master is a bow in Pali, just like we would call someone uh, Mr. So-and-so or something. So that's the normal way you speak with equals. But now here suddenly, he is calling the Buddha um, Venerable Sir, right, Venerable Sir. And he's, he's also even calling him the Blessed One. And this means that at that stage already he must have changed very much in heart. One can easily miss it. Reading this sutta, these are the, these small subtle points one can actually easily miss. Something very important has already happened and he has already gained faith, faith in the Buddha, else he wouldn't change his address in such an extreme way. Especially the term Blessed One, Sugata in Pali. This is normally how, how really devoted lay disciples, even monks, address the Buddha. And the Right, Ex excellent. I would fully agree. Because the way Potalia here, he became upset, but the Buddha didn't do anything. He just asked these very friendly questions, how do you do it? And then we are doing it a little bit different. And probably he recognized that. But even so, I think even that might not be enough to make this really huge change that he has got full faith. And I think a very important point is just the presence of the Buddha. We've got many suttas where people seem to be really change just by encountering and just being close to him for a short time. Because the Buddha has got all these 32 marks and they may appear sometimes a little bit weird to us, but I think we don't have to take them too literally. I think it would just look ex extremely inspiring. People would just have kind of natural faith just by the Buddha's external appearance and then also just what you call charisma or vibes or aura around a person. And I think that also had already some effect on Potalia. But certainly, Lin, I would agree. He, he recognized he was angry, but the Buddha didn't return any anger at all. So a major change, and now already has got faith, and he really wants to know about the Dhamma. And this is usually when the Buddha opens up. Even nowadays, you find that teachers, one of some of the famous teachers, when they feel a person isn't really interested, or if a person doesn't really believe anyhow, or a person just wants to check out, has this teacher of psychic powers, they might, they might not feel much inclination to really teach. But if they know a person has got faith, if they know a person, now he really wants to know, then they usually make an effort and they deliver these long sermons. So the Buddha starts off, Then listen, householder, and attend closely to what I shall say. That is a normal stock phrase the Buddha uses when he wants someone to give his full attention, lending an ear, lending uh, both ears, and 
how do we say it, to, to prick up our ears, to really listen attentively. Yes, Venerable Sir, Potele the householder replied. The Blessed One said this. Householder, there are these eight things in the Noble One's discipline that lead to the cutting off of affairs. What are the eight? With the support of the non-killing of living beings, the killing of living beings is to be abandoned. With the support of taking only what is given, the taking of what is not given is to be abandoned. With the support of truthful speech, false speech is to be abandoned. With the support of unmalicious speech, malicious speech is to be abandoned. With the support of refraining from rapacious greed, rapacious greed is to be abandoned. With the support of refraining from spiteful scolding, spiteful scolding is to be abandoned. With the support of refraining from angry despair, angry despair is to be abandoned. With the support of non-arrogance, arrogance is to be abandoned. These are the eight things, stated in brief without being expounded in detail, that lead to the cutting off of affairs and the noble one's discipline. And it seems to me here, these, exactly these um, eight categories, I think, I never find anywhere else in the suttas. You see, part of it is the five precepts, but I think the Buddha gave him a teaching to his individual character here. He uses four of the five precepts. He doesn't speak about uh, alcohol, probably because he recognizes that this is not a problem of Potalia. But then he speaks here about spiteful scolding, for example. And this is exactly what happened in the beginning, because he got immediately upset just that he is addressed as householder, although there was no fault with the Buddha. He looks like a householder. So this is why the Buddha gives him this, for his individual character, the kind of instruction to abandon spiteful scolding. Similar arrogance, to abandon arrogance, because he's a little bit arrogant when he comes with his parasol, thinking he knows better, maybe checking out the psychic powers of the Buddha. Does he know I have given up all my affairs? And then finally, there, what Venerable Bodhi translates here as angry despair. Adranyana Tusita pointed out that kodhopayasa, koda in Pali, is usually uh, a noun. It never seems to be used as an adjective. So I would follow uh, Adranyana Tusita. You may remember him. He's very knowledgeable in Pali. He was here last year. I would follow him here, and I would rather translate it as a dwanda compound, not, not as kamadari, and I would say anger and irritation, or anger and annoyance, not despair. I think despair usually also isn't angry. If you're desperate, usually you're not, no longer angry. So I would definitely translate here rather, uh, with the support of refraining from anger and irritation, anger and irritation is to be abandoned. Or maybe anger and annoyance is to be abandoned. And that also fits to Potera's um, reaction here. He didn't show any despair but he showed irritation. Right. Yeah, he doesn't. Probably it's also not a problem for him. I think the Buddha is just going really for the things because the Buddha can mind read. Not like normal mind reading. He even can discern just all the underlying tendencies, the maturity of the faculties in a person. So he can give exactly the teaching someone needs. And he might realize that Potali may have no problems about the third precept. He may be even keeping brahmacharya, I don't know. He might be keeping celibacy. That's possible. 
Yeah, I think I said four of the presets I mentioned, but he mentions only three. Killing, stealing, uh, lying. Right, yes. And the other thing which is strange here, when the Bodhi speaks about it in his uh, note, is that the Buddha speaks of, with the support of a non-killing, killing is to be abandoned. And I think this is a different, a linguistic difference in the Pali and in the English. For us normally, like, uh, non-killing is just plain negative. It doesn't have any positive substance to it. But it seems for the, for the Indians at the time of the Buddha, the negation of something had a more like of positive aspect, like some substantial quality. It's very similar with Nibbana. Often Westerners are stunned that Nibbana is described in these negative terms, like, like eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion, or deathless. It's always what Nibbana is not. And for us Westerners, often it's not so appealing then, because we want rather a, a positive description. But it seems for the ancient Indian mind, just the negation of a term is a, a positive quality in itself. But I think nowadays one would probably express it a little bit different. One would say maybe like with the support of harmlessness or with the support of loving kindness or with the support of uh, compassion, the killing of living beings is to be abandoned. But I think for the Indian mind, just this negation, non-killing, I think they would automatically kind of perceive these qualities like compassion, loving kindness, harmlessness. I think it wasn't necessary. They would have, when they hear this non-killing, they would immediately include it as a kind of positive quality, loving kindness, similar with the other ones. I come to this a little bit later when he goes through the things in detail. In some cases, like with the support of refraining of, of, from rapacious greed, when a Buddhist translation, refraining from is actually not even in the Pali, but you can't even express it in English. The Pali just says, with the support of non-rapacious greed, rapacious greed is to be abandoned. But that doesn't really make much sense in, in English. So when the Bodhi is using the uh, term here, with the support of refraining from rapacious greed, but the refraining isn't even in the Pali. Is this a question? Or? No, no question. If anyone has questions, please, yeah. You mean the support of non-killing? Why? Um, I'm not so sure because intention doesn't seem to be uh, mentioned also on the other side. The killing of living beings also intention isn't mentioned. But it might be a possibility. You would, you would say the support is kind of developing the opposite attention. That would be your interpretation. I definitely agree that you're right in terms of Dhamma. This is, this is definitely the support we have to give our effort in abandoning killing, namely the intention of not killing, the intention of being harmless and compassionate, empathy. However, I'm not sure whether this is actually what the Buddha is aiming here at. But I think it's a possible interpretation that the support of uh, non-killing means the intention of non-killing. However, the Pali term is usually not translated I think it's Nisaya, or I can check that out for you. Nisaya, that usually doesn't mean intention. But I think in terms of Dhamma, I could follow that interpretation, even if the Buddha doesn't want to point it out here. Okay. These are the eight things, stated in brief, without being expounded in detail, that lead to the cutting off of affairs in the Noble One's discipline. 
But number third, it would be good if, out of compassion, the Blessed One would expound to me in detail these eight things that lead to the cutting off of affairs in the Noble One's discipline, which have been stated in brief by the Blessed One without being expounded in detail. So again, we see the, the very skillful means here of the Buddha in teaching people. He gives them first just this exposition, like, like to, to whet their appetite, so to speak, And he was quite successful. You see, again, uh, Portalia is using all these very um, respectful terms. Venerable Sir, if the Blessed One, out of compassion, please, please expound it in detail. So his interest in his faith is obviously increasing. He has got some understanding. He feels inspired by these eight subjects. And now he really wants to know, what is this in detail? What really does it mean? How can I practice this, maybe in practice? Then listen, householder, and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir, Portalia, the householder, replied. The Blessed One said this. With the support of the non-killing of living beings, the killing of living beings is to be abandoned. So it was said. And with reference to what was this said? Here a noble disciple considers thus. I am practicing the way to the abandoning and cutting off of those fetters because of which I might kill living beings. If I were to kill living beings, I would blame myself for doing so. The wise, having investigated, would censure me for doing so. And on the dissolution of the body after death, because of killing living beings, an unhappy destination would be expected. But this killing of living beings is itself a fetter and a hindrance. And why taints, vexation and fever might arise through the killing of living beings, there are no taints, vexation and fever in one who abstains from killing living beings. So it is with reference to this that it was said, with the support of the non-killing of living beings, the killing of living beings is to be abandoned. And I went through it here, and the Buddha has given actually six very useful reflections here. Now, the Buddha uses just the, also the power of wisdom, of insight, of reflecting wisely. This is what supports us. As you said, the Buddha is now giving, what, what is this support actually in detail? And there are six different reflections. If I were to kill living beings, I would blame myself for doing so. We get problems with our conscience. Because even if no one else notices, we, we ourselves notice what we are doing. And we will not feel good about it. So that, that is the first reflection. If I find it difficult to do any of these things, maybe killing living beings might not be so difficult, but, but other ones, arrogance or rapacious greed, anger and irritation, I mean, unless we are anagamis, we, we all have these things. And often we may have wondered before, how, how can I finally give it up? How do I get rid of this pride or this anger and irritation? And so the Buddha is giving six reflections here we can skillfully use. So one is, if I were to kill living beings, I would blame myself for doing so. I get this problem with my conscience. Second, if I were to kill uh, sorry, the wise, having investigated, would censure me for doing so. If you are known as an arrogant, uh, <laughs> untrustworthy, um, greedy fellow, I mean, knowledgeable people will not really like us. One feels embarrassed to, to see a Kruba Ajahn and to ask anything if one runs around with his reputation. Actually, not only the bias, but, but still, I think even nowadays, the majority of people wouldn't really, wouldn't really like us. And we might get censured. Ajahn Brahm might give you a scolding. Probably, probably not Ajahn Brahm, he's so, he's so soft. 
Also, again, about the wise. Sometimes we might think the wise don't know what we are doing when we are alone in our room or whatever. But we have to consider, for example, devas and even normal, very normal spirits and ghosts. It's normal for them to, to see it all. So it's, it's also a useful reflection. Sometimes we think no one knows about what we are doing. But actually, at least some devas or some relatives or some spirits will be around. And even our thoughts, it's quite likely that someone will actually notice it. Also, people with psychic powers might notice But that danger isn't so great because highly adv advanced people usually don't like to, to look into our mind. But people often have this idea, they're very afraid that a Kuba Ajahn might always read their mind, but why should he do so except for compassion? For, for a very highly developed practitioner to look into an unenlightened mind, that it's just like I'm not walking around and uh, mucking around in your garbage to find out what you've been eating during the day or something. It's just very, very unpleasant. <laughs> So the, the only reason that enlightened beings do this is actually out of compassion. It's nothing interesting for them to see in our minds. Just lots of defilements and a lot of muck. So they do it only if there's a reason. This is probably also the reason why the Buddha actually didn't notice it. It's not like the Buddha always looks into people's mind. But this person appeared very clearly like a householder, so he addressed him like this, without going for any kind of psychic powers. Because what you see in the unenlightened mind isn't so pleasant. And on the dissolution of the body after death, because of killing living beings, an unhappy destination would be expected. So that is the, the karmic aspect and also the important reflection. What we are doing is not relevant only for this life, only up to the point of our death, but consciousness passes on. Only the body dies at death. What we call consciousness or mind will just go on and it will fare according to its karma. And all our action, all the things we have done, like killing living beings in this case, or not killing them, that is the karma we do and that is what's traveling with us. So a very important reflection. If, if I find it difficult to restrain my anger, I can just reflect on that the anger will travel with me. If I have got a tendency for anger, the underlying tendency for anger, it will uh, follow me after death. It's part of my mind, not a part of my body, the anger. So it's in my mind and it will drag me to an unhappy rebirth and I will be an angry person even in next life. However, on the other side, if I'm compassionate and kind and loving and caring, that also will follow me. It's good karma, all the actions I do with this motivation, and also the underlying tendency for kindness will, uh, will not go away when I die. And I will continue practice on a higher level in the next life. Um, but this killing of living beings is itself a fetter and a hindrance. Another reflection we can use. Again, the, this is one of the stick reflections. Some are more like the carrot, You know, the, the different Ajahn always talks about the stick and the carrot. We can reflect on the disadvantages, that would be the stick, or we can reflect on the advantages of the wholesome practice, that would be the carrot. So here we're reflecting on that all these unwholesome qualities like uh, arrogance and anger also, that these are fetters and hindrances, and hindrances for our meditation. So if I kill living beings, if I get upset, if I lie, it means I find it difficult to progress in meditation. And when I'm sitting on this nine-day retreat and all the others are really taking off and blessing out and I'm struggling, one reason may be that my, my sila or my anger is not yet under control. Or a fetter, a fetter against enlightenment. These things stop us from becoming enlightened. Sometimes we forget about it. So it's important to, to bring it back to mind. Whenever these unwholesome mind states arise, we reflect this is actually what stops me getting really deep in my meditation. This is what stops me becoming enlightened. 
And while taints, vexation, and fever might arise through the killing of living beings, there are no taints, vexation, and fever in one who abstains from killing living beings. Something like, like anger. If I get into an anger, it's easy to see what the Buddha means by vexation, fever. If we get hot, it's bad for our health. We get agitated. It doesn't feel nice. It's funny that we get angry, although it doesn't feel nice. No, no one likes really to be angry. Another important reflection. And I left out the first one because I'm not too sure, but I'm practicing the way to the abandoning and cutting off of those fetters because of which I might kill living beings. So we have to reflect that this very urge which is driving us to be angry or to lie, that this is actually the fetter, and now I've entered the path to, to eliminate exactly this urge to do these unwholesome things. Are there any questions? I'm talking so long. Comments? Okay. Now the Buddha goes, there are always these um, abbreviations. The Buddha would normally give this whole um, paragraph I was just reading out now for each of these age qualities. But I just follow the abbreviations here as we're getting too long. But sometimes it can be actually useful as almost like a contemplation to try to read out a sutta using all these repetitions. Because the Buddha is often not just teaching intellectual knowledge, but it's more like a kind of guided meditation, you can almost say. He's really getting like, like drilling it into the person's mind deeper and deeper. And each repetition serves as a kind of meditation. With the support of taking only what is given, the taking of what is not given is to be abandoned. And I would maybe supply here these positive qualities, which for the Indian mind are already implied by the negation. But I would say like uh, the non-taking of non-given things would be expressed maybe as contentment in English. We would say with the support of contentment or with the support of simplicity or frugality, the taking of what is not given is to be abandoned. We have to know there are certain limitations what we can get in this life due to our karma. We always get this wrong information fed into our mind that we can become millionaires and if we just struggle enough we can all be rich and we can all become Bill Gates. But I mean, there are limitations due to our karma and even someone like Bill Gates, he must have done some good karma in the past as he cannot become the richest person in the world and hold that position for many years. There must be good karma in the background. So whatever, we, we do what we can by honest means and what we can achieve by, by honest work, this is what we are content with. And then we don't try to get more by, by illegal or dodgy means. With the support of truthful speech, false speech is to be abandoned. They would add here as a positive quality, the opposite of this lying, things like uh, honesty, sincerity, or to, to be trustworthy, with the support of being a really trustworthy person, developing this positive... Sometimes we look too much on what we should not do. We always see fourth precept, I may not lie. But there's also this positive aspect. And I think this is what the Buddha actually wants to, be, to point out here. It's not only that we're not lying. It's actually that we're positively de trying to develop this quality of sincerity, truthfulness, to be a really trustworthy person. People can put their full confidence into. Yeah. Right. Like 
mindfulness, sati, sampajanya, clear comprehension, full awareness, mental clarity. I think that is part of this, but I would put it maybe even more into the fifth precept. Because intoxication, getting drunk and taking drugs, I think that is the straight opposite to mental clarity. The Buddha even said that someone who drinks alcohol regularly, uh, he eliminates his faculty of sati and uh, sampajanya, of mindfulness and clear comprehension, of mental clarity. So I would say the uh, positive quality of mental clarity would be the um, positive opposite even to the, five pre to the fifth precept of taking intoxications. But to some extent it also fits here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making political statements, especially <laughs> on recorded... On recorded <laughs> Fortunately, I know that, is, that Rodney is a little bit cheeky, so I know when the questions come, I have to be <laughs> careful. <laughs> if he gets too cheeky, I continue reading out in Pali. <laughs> just, just, just whatever is the effect of this drug, whatever drug it is, check whatever the, the effect on your mind. And if the qualities of mindfulness and clear comprehension, full awareness, if that gets afflicted, then it's certainly not recommended by the Buddha. Yes, yes. It's not only alcohol, the fifth precept, any kind of intoxication, anything which eliminates these qualities of mindfulness and clear comprehension, or also anything which uh, reduces like the sense of shame and conscience. I'm not sure whether, whether dope has got that effect, but I, I suspect so. But my, my feeling, at least when I saw long-term users, it seems that they actually become quite dull. Even in, in plain worldly terms, they seem to be not very sharp. Also? Paranoia, yes, yes, yes. But whether legalizing or not, I, I don't comment on... on, on a legal or political question, but, but I would definitely recommend anyone not to take it. If you ask me whether you or anyone that I would recommend to take uh, cannabis, I would say no. I would recommend not to take it. Definitely so. Because it actually does what this, uh, it eliminates this positive quality and increases things like muddledness of mind. Yes, yes. Yes. I, I, I'm not sure what is the best way to go, but I certainly would discourage it. Anyone who wants to know, should I smoke dope or not, I would certainly say, I recommend you not to do it. And that would be my understanding that the Buddha recommends not to do it. Is it? I think painkillers, usually it's understood as non-medicinal drugs. But I know that monks, for example... Actually, Ajahn, Ajahn uh, Damanando, he told us in, in hospital, one day the doc recommended him to take some stronger painkillers because he has got all this unpleasant procedure at your eye. You can imagine the eye is very sensitive, and when they poke around in your eye or put a, put a syringe and actually give you an injection to the eye, it's very unpleasant. So he took it, and he said that it actually really muddled up his mindfulness quite, quite strongly. And he, felt a little bit, uh, he felt some regret of taking it. And when Kagata, he said that after his two uh, general anesthetics he got, general anesthesia, he felt that his meditation actually became weak. 
But I, I wouldn't say that you're actually um, offending the precept. I would leave that to the person, how much painkiller he takes. But I think if one can do without, I think it's probably better in terms of mental clarity. But I wouldn't say that it's uh, offending the precept, painkiller. So that depends on the person, what, whatever he can handle, what, what he feels. So is it okay? Or? For what? I wouldn't really put that anymore under the precept because the five precepts are kept very simple to have really the most basic kind of sila, the most, the greatest danger. But uh, in terms of dhamma, I, I would definitely extend it. We have so many intoxications. I mean, one thing I would mention is the TV. I certainly don't say it's against the fifth precept if you watch TV, but you can definitely dull yourself out. I mean, I can't understand. Also, Ajahnamananda, he mentioned, was such a such a burden in the hospital. The people have got nowadays a TV in the room and it just goes all day. He said he just became completely screwed up in his mind just having this TV. And many of us say, oh, or shopping. I mean, you, you can use even shopping. Shop till you drop. It's more, it's more for the ladies, I think. That <laughs> just, you can even use shopping. We are actually very much a society um, indulging in all kinds of intoxications. But I wouldn't really put this under the fifth precept, but we have to use our wisdom and, and apply these things. This is more like um, Dhamma practice in the more refined ways, moving into, into the way of samadhi, not just going beyond just the virtue. I think your virtue is okay if you don't take any real drugs and, and alcohol. I mean, illegal or recreational drugs and alcohol. But you can apply it also to these other things if you want to refine your practice further. Um, with the support of unmalicious speech, malicious, malicious speech is to be abandoned. How long have we actually have we got up to exactly four? Is it quarter four thirty, or what? What is the time frame? Four thirty is the time frame. Okay, just that I know when I have to stop here. But when do they come? Five o'clock. Oh, I don't think I'm going till five o'clock. Uh, don't don't worry. <laughs> so four thirty is maybe reason. Okay. You're more convenient standing, is it? Or? Yes, yes, yes. Just, just whatever is most convenient for me. Um, with the support of unmalicious speech, malicious, malicious speech is to be abandoned. We actually don't really have a full term for what is translated here as malicious speech. Oh, please keep standing if you like. It, it doesn't... It doesn't um, the Pali is pisunavacha, and it's a very technical term. This means kind of slandering a person but with true slander. If we hear gossip or slander things, we think of uh, inventing things about another person to put him down. But th that would offend, obviously, the, the precept about lying. If I just invent something about someone, I tell some weird story about an agita about Rodney, which is completely invention, it's not true. Uh, that would offend uh, the precept against lying. But sometimes we may actually notice someone, a person may make a, a bad remark about someone else. And I pick this up and then I tell someone else. So I tell, I tell actually the truth about another person, but with this malicious intention to put him down or to, to give uh, the other person a bad impression. Say, I'll give you an example. I hear, uh, I hear Venerable Ajita after the talk. Um, I'm trying to design an example. <laughs> yeah. 
After, after, after the talk, he talks to Rodney and says, that was a really miserable talk. <laughs> so, so now Rodney comes to me and he wants to, give, he wants to, to create a rift between Venerable Ajita and me. So he goes to me and he says, oh, did you know Venerable Ajita said your talk was really miserable? So I get, and again, I get very upset and I think that's not very nice. <laughs> no, no, no. We are so close. No, we are good friends, Rodney and me, so I can use him for these kind of nasty examples. You, you would forgive me, I know that. I know that, Rodney, you would forgive me. This is, why, this is why I was hesitating what kind of example to use, because someone has to be, play the bad guy for this example. <laughs> but Rodney is so friendly, he will take it. So this is what, what is called pisunavacha. It's actually true kind of gossiping. But it's still very nasty. It's creating rifts between people. We would... We too would get. I, I might never actually mention to Venerable Ajita. Venerable Ajita doesn't know why I suddenly become so upset and why I suddenly move away from him. But it was this very skillful just telling something which was actually true. That is what Venerable Bodhi translates usually as malicious speech. And unmalicious speech would be um, in the positive expression to use speech which is actually creating harmony, reconciling people. So if you notice people have got a conflict, we do, we do not try to make it even worse, but we, we, we try to bring them back together again. Say something positive. Say, say about how this person actually made sometimes a positive comment. Maybe Venerable Ajita may also say that I did it very nicely at the dana or whatever. And then Rodney comes and says, oh, Venerable Ajita was really praising you that you talked about the Buddha Rupa at the dana or something like this. Then I feel very happy and I think, oh, Ajita is a really good mate. <laughs> this is how we can create harmony. Uh, with the support of refraining from rapacious greed. Rapacious greed is to be abandoned. And I would use here the positive quality to be the opposite to rapacious greed, like generosity ne? and uh, letting go. Maybe also again contentment and frugality or even just renunciation, you can say. The opposite of rapacious greed, the straight opposite, I, I, I say, would, would be renunciation. Just, just giving up, letting go. So with the support of generosity, giving up, renunciation and letting go, rapacious greed is to be abandoned. With the support of refraining from spiteful scolding, spiteful scolding is to be abandoned. So I would say with the support of forgiveness, forbearing, with the support of patience and tolerance, with the support of uh, maybe leniency, uh, spiteful scolding is to be abandoned with the support of loving kindness and compassion, with the support of um, friendliness, with the support of love and care, anger and irritation is to be abandoned. And with the support of non-arrogance, arrogance is to be abandoned. So what would be the positive quality, the opposite of arrogance? Humility, exactly. It's not a very popular thing nowadays. <laughs> just, just imagine uh, um, maybe one of these top executive jobs conquering the whole Asian market for our Australian products we are so proud of, proudly made in Australia. Now you're supposed to, to conquer the Asian market as a sales manager. There's this vacancy and you go for the job interview. You present yourself as a very humble person, grateful, loving, caring. 
sometimes we have to face the truth that maybe in, in worldly terms, if we really practice seriously, sometimes we may be a little bit in the disadvantage. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, I mean, it, it, it will pay off. Also, you find that sometimes some people, even if they are not pushing, sometimes they still get it just by their good karma. Like Ajahn Tate, he's so soft. This famous Thai group, Ajahn Ajahn Tate, and he became one of the most famous Ajahns, just worshipped by everyone. He got so much support, although he was so incredibly humble and, and, and shy and almost timid. Or, well, not timid, but how do you say, coy. So humility, maybe also self-effacing, you can say, or, or self-abnegation. Self softness to arrogance. Right. I would put that maybe more as the opposite to spiteful scolding. But certainly a person who is humble is usually also somewhat soft. Right, right. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said, here a noble disciple considers thus. Now come again the repetition of these reflections we talk about. I am practicing the way to the abandoning and cutting off of those fetters because of which I might be arrogant. If I were to be arrogant, I would blame myself for this. The wise, having investigated, would censure me for this. And on the dissolution of the body after death, because of being arrogant, an unhappy destination would be expected. But this arrogance is itself a fetter and a hindrance. And while taints, vexation and fever might arise through arrogance, there are no taints, vexation and fever for one who is not arrogant. So it is with reference to this that it was said, with the support of non-arrogance, with the support of humility and self-effacement, arrogance is to be abandoned. And I think often it's a very good exercise maybe to take a sutta and to go through all this repetition in full. Because when a body usually does it for the first one and for the last one, so it means six of these qualities, we have not been really using these um, altogether six reflections. And it can be a very, very beautiful and useful exercise if you study a sutta to actually go through all these repetitions and to try to understand and reflect and uh, supply these kind of reflections on all of the eight qualities. But I, I won't do this one now. These eight things that lead to the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline have now been expounded in detail. But the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline has not yet been achieved entirely and in all ways. And again, the Buddha doesn't continue because he wants the person to come forward now. He gets, he gets more and more interested. He wants to know more and more. He's more and more receptive. Venerable Sir, how is the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline achieved entirely and in all ways? It would be good, Venerable Sir, if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma, showing me how the cutting off of affairs in the Noble One's discipline is achieved entirely and in all ways. Then listen, householder, and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, Potalia, the householder, replied. The Blessed One said this. Now come, now come this beautiful chain or string of similes. That's the main reason why I chose this sutta. It's one of my, almost like, some of my favorite similes on sensual pleasures. Six, or how many is it? Seven, seven very powerful similes we can apply to all the kind of sensual pleasures in our life. So in a sense, it's a little bit a monkish sutta. <laughs> you, you get a little bit uh, anti-sensuality today. Householder, suppose a dog, overcome by hunger and weakness, was waiting at a butcher's shop. 
Then a skilled butcher or his apprentice would cut out a skeleton of meatless bones smeared with blood and toss it to the dog. What do you think, householder? Would that dog get rid of his hunger and weakness by gnawing such a skeleton of meatless bones smeared with blood? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because that skeleton consisted only of meatless bones smeared with blood. Eventually that dog would reap weariness and disappointment. So what, what is the Buddha trying to say here with his simile? We, we all, all of us here, as long as we are living in the central world, as long as we are not anagamis, we are all this poor, hungry dog. And all our central pleasure, whatever it is, is just this bone without any meat. But it still has got the nice taste. You can imagine this poor dog, how he's gnawing, he's so emaciated, he's so hungry, and now he tries to satisfy his hunger. But no chance. The smell is there, even the taste is there. But he won't get anything out of it. And this is what sensuality is like. Whatever we do, in the end it doesn't really satisfy. It feels nice. You can gnaw a little bit. You can get the, the, the scent and so on. But it never satisfies. The hunger never goes away. The thirst never goes away. You have this... Um, you can say almost like the fire. Different. The Buddha always talks about the, the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because the fire has got this quality as well. If you feed a fire, it will never get satisfied. It just gets stronger. And this is how central desires work. Each time we feed it, the central desire actually tends to become stronger. But it's very tricky. Often what we don't notice, the moment you s we have to distinguish here between the underlying tendency and the acute manifestation. And this is what people often don't understand. Because the moment you satisfy a central desire, then for a short time, uh, the, actual, the manifestation is gone. But the underlying tendency has become stronger. For example, if I'm very keen on, say, a certain kind of food, I'm into pizza, so I eat a huge amount of pizza. And of course, straight after that, I'm, I'm no, 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 I don't have any appetite anymore for pizza. So then people think, by satisfying sensual desires, you can actually reduce them. But that's a huge fallacy, because the underlying tendency has actually been strengthened. And once I have digested that pizza, then the next time the hunger comes up, it's actually a little bit stronger. And so it goes all the time. It's also the same on the negative. Say I'm, I'm very angry, and then I go really into a fit of rage and I start yelling at people. Of course, straight after doing that, then the anger may be gone. So people think I have to let out my anger <laughs> in order to, get to, to reduce this defilement. But it's, it's a straight opposite. The anger is gone just for a short moment, but the next time there's an occasion, an irritation, then the anger will come up because the underlying tendency to anger actually has been strengthened. And that means the next time the anger comes up, it's a little bit stronger. And then I already start developing the tendency to actually act on my anger and to start to scream or yell. And the more I do it, the stronger becomes this underlying tendency. It's like with this dog. He was very hungry even before he got the bone. But you can imagine when he gets this bone and, and is gnawing on it for a while, actually the hunger just gets more because he does get the scent. There was an interesting story. In our monastery, we do all these jobs, when Brahmali, our workmaster, and one, one day I got cleaning the ablution block, the showers, and also the windows, and so I took one of these old newspapers. There was a very interesting article on one of these super rich people that was one, one of these Greek ship owner families. And uh, 
I really got stuck on that when I read it before cleaning the... <laughs> Never say you can't learn anything from, from cleaning the, the windows in the evolution book in the monastery. <laughs> and, and he was actually really rich. He was not just a multimillionaire. He was a genuine billionaire. He was even still young, in his 30s. He was the party king of London. <laughs> he would know all the rich and beautiful. He would know all the famous people. He would have these private parties, free drugs for all. <laughs> And uh, all the models would hang out at his parties. He was well known in society, a billionaire. He was even so fit that he climbed Mount Everest. I mean, obviously he was very rich. He would just pay the whole expedition and somehow they would drag him on top. But, but even to be dragged on top by the real mountain, yes, he must be reasonably fit. And, and this is the kind of person you would think he should be quite satisfied because he satisfies his sensual desires. You would think, in his case, you can't say this is just a bone without meat. He should really get something out of it. But the reality was he was actually so desperate. He was completely desperate, and he killed himself. He killed himself by eating cocaine with a tablespoon. <laughs> and actually, very interesting, one of these uh, models was in the flat while he did this. And what she did, she didn't jump on him. She didn't try to stop him. She didn't scream or don't do it. She sneaked out of the door. <laughs> this, this is the kind of friends you make at drug parties. When it comes to a question of life and death, they, they just sneak out of the door. And I, I found it very fascinating that someone who has got just everything, I mean, young, billionaire, fit enough to climb Mount Everest, party king in London, one of the most fascinating cities on this earth, just everything. But he was so desperate that he committed suicide. And you can understand it here, because all these desires just become stronger, and the dissatisfaction becomes even stronger. The more you have, the stronger the desires become. That's a hard one to, to accept or to take or to understand, but that's definitely what the Buddha wants to say here. And every time we do it, we're just gnawing on these bones. Okay. So too, household, and noble disciple considers thus. Sensual pleasures have been compared to a skeleton by the Blessed One. I think it's actually not really a whole skeleton, but just, just like, a, like a bun bone they throw to this dog. They provide much suffering and much despair while the danger in them is great. And this is a trick. We shouldn't, we shouldn't look at the reward because you do get a little bit reward. The dog also gets some reward. It smells nice. It tastes nice. But he doesn't get satisfaction. So we, ref we reflect on the dangers. But we come to this with these other similes. Please. I wouldn't quite agree. I wouldn't quite agree. These are different kinds of desire. This is talking about sensual desires. Maybe I, here it says, and nobody disciple considers thus sensual pleasures have been compared to a skeleton. Jhanas, Magapala, enlightenment, that's not a sensual pleasure. Kameso, no, what is the Pali? Karma, K-long-A-M-A, karma, that is sensual desires or the objects of sensual desires. It has got this double meaning in Pali, can be both. Internally, our desire for objects of sensuality, externally, all these objects or desires latching on. Both is called karma in Pali, K-A-M-A. 
So and the enlightenment jhanas doesn't come under this. These similes are not meant. Please do not reflect if I desire jhana, if I want to attain enlightenment, that is just like this bone. Because that actually does give you some some more decent satisfaction. That is like a like a like a like a real good um steak from from the best from the best restaurant getting jhanas. There actually you do get something. Yes. Yes. You have to let go of this, but only on the stage of anagami. What you're describing is this kind of desire which you have to let go as an anagami. This can be one of the most refined fetters stopping you to become fully enlightened. But up to that stage, if we don't have the desire, the intention, the will, the um, putting forth effort, parakamadatu in Pali, if we don't have this, then we never make progress. You have to overcome desire by desire. There's one sutta where Venerable Ananda advises this nun. This, this little nun is in love with Venerable Ananda. And she asks him to come and instruct her. But it's just, just a ploy. So she's lying there on her bed with under another <laughs> bed sheet. And Venerable Ananda recognizes the situation. He tells her, you have to overcome conceit by means of conceit. You can even say so many people have attained and Ajahn can in, in, to get into this good meditation. Why can't I? That can be a useful nudge to get your head. And when Ananda advised this little nun, you can, you can overcome um, desire by means of desire, tanha by tanha. Because there is a kind of wholesome desire. If you talk, look at the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha speaks about karma tanha, bhava tanha, and vibhava tanha. He doesn't speak about the tanha for, for the desire or the, the craving for enlightenment. That's a necessary condition for enlightenment. You must have it in the beginning. But then he told this little nun, you can't overcome sexual intercourse by sexual intercourse. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. But, but you can overcome, you can use craving, wholesome craving to overcome the unwholesome craving. You start with the less, first you eliminate the, the really unwholesome cravings and you actually develop the wholesome ones. Your desire for jhana should become stronger if you practice correctly. But the desire for sensuality should become less. All right. Okay, the skillful means at what times you actually make use of desire and so on. Okay, I agree on that one. If you're just sitting there and you just think, I want jhana, I want jhana, of course you don't get anywhere. Right. You have to know the right times when to consider that. And, and then to also you have to know how to translate this kind of desire into actually skillful means. I mean, that is one of the important or one of the very difficult things about right effort. There's this very famous, you find often the first suttas in the Nikayas are very powerful. The first one in Sutta Nikaya, Sangyutta Nikaya, this Deva Buddha asked, the Deva asked the Buddha, how did you cross the flood? The Buddha said, without straining and without, uh, without standing still, I crossed the flood. Because when I strained, I was whirled around. If I stood still, I would sink. That is exactly this question of right effort. Both aspects have to be there. If you're constantly pushing willpower and so on, you don't get anywhere. But if you're just relaxing, you say, no desire, nothing, I don't want to get anywhere, also it doesn't work. You have to use both at the right time. Sometimes you have to push a little bit, 
you have to put forth effort, you have to make a, an effort by will to abandon unwholesome states, but at other times you have to learn to let go and to calm down and to let it settle, to let it fade away. But that is part of the wisdom faculty in meditation to, to learn at what time in our own mind is what required. But if you let completely go of the desire for getting jhana or becoming enlightened, then you won't even go to the meditation retreat. You never get into the situation that you sit there in meditation. and There must be some desire, and you, you go to this retreat. But then once you sit, then you just watch your breath. At that time, of course, you don't sit there and think, I want jhana, I want jhana. You just sit there and watch your breath. So both these aspects. It's a very deep sutta. This very first one is Sanyutta Nikaya. The deva was actually a little bit stunned by that, by the answer didn't understand. And if you, the Buddha said, if I strained, then I would just, if I, if I really struggled hard, then I would just twirl around in the water. But if I stood still, then I would sink. So you have to find the, another application of the middle way. Is that helpful? The middle way applies to many things, not only to asceticism and to what is the other, uh, asceticism or sensual indulgence, but it also applies to the views, like it, views of eternity or views of um, annihilation. You can apply it in so many ways. And also, again, about this question of willpower, struggling, effort, energy, or just letting go, calming down, watching without involvement. This is also an application. If you go to one of the two extremes will fail. You have to find the middle way between them. And the middle way is always difficult to find. People often have this wrong idea, like the middle way is just like middle of the road. But it's actually the straight opposite. Just imagine like a ridge, a mountain ridge. That is the middle way, going ex- exactly on the ridge and getting higher and higher. And one, one side is sloping down to the desert of, say, um, uh, of asceticism. And the other way on the ridge is sloping down to the swamp of sensuality. So the tendency is actually always to miss the middle way. Only Sotapanna, for him it becomes more natural to follow the middle way. But for us it's actually like walking a ridge. And the dangerous always, natural tendency is always to slip away from the middle way. So the natural tendency in your meditation will be to, to either slip into pushing too much, putting too much effort, or else relaxing completely. And to, have to, to use it skillfully, that is exactly the middle way. But it's hard to find. It's not, not easy. People have this wrong idea, middle way is... Just, just the ordinary, the big road, middle of the road politics, it's, it's not at all. The normal thing is just slipping into the extremes. That is normal. And so the same with this effort question. It's, it's hard to find the middle way there. Oh, yes, yes, you have developed the wisdom, the understanding. How, 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 when actually you personally, in your own practice, when do you have to actually generate effort and will? And when do you have to let go? But obviously, normally, when you sit in meditation, then there is more time for just calming and letting go. Okay. The next one. Uh, okay. Sensual pleasures have been compared to a skeleton by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. Having seen this thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, he avoids the equanimity that is diversified based on diversity and develops the equanimity that is unified based on unity where clinging to the material things of the world utterly ceases without remainder. Here's another important thing. Sometimes 
The Buddha is often talking about very high dhammas. We might not even fully, fully get that. It sounds so easy, it's just a short sentence. So when he says here, for example, develops the equanimity that is unified, based on unity, that is the equanimity of fourth jhana. So the Buddha suddenly here is talking now about a person who is able to attain fourth jhana. He has got this powerful mind. This is the state which is meant where clinging to the material things of the world utterly ceases without remainder. It's a little bit stunning that the Buddha says without remainder because even in the attainment of fourth jhana, once the person comes out, the fetters are not destroyed and the hindrances can come back. But I think the Buddha means that within this state of fourth jhana, there is no remainder of any centrality or anything. And, and Venerable Bodhi in his note actually says the equanimity that is diversified based on diversity, he says, for example, or that is apathy, indifference, but uh, according to the commentary. But I would disagree. I think the Buddha first talks here about the equanimity we achieve, for example, by reflecting wisely on this kind of similes. Because if I really reflect skillfully on this bone, I may get some equanimity to the sensual pleasures. I realize it doesn't really satisfy, so I become more equanimous to sensual pleasures. And that is what the Buddha means here by he avoids the equanimity that is diversified based on diversity. Because even if I have got that far, I get some equanimity from these reflections on all these similes the Buddha is giving now. It's still not good enough. And then comes the equanimity the Buddha recommends uh, of, of unity, based on unity, the equanimity which comes from the fourth jhana. That is a more powerful one. So in this case here, first, by just using these reflections, we can get a little bit more detached from the centrality by reflecting wisely, but then that isn't quite good enough. Then comes the other equanimity, which is unified, based on unity, from the practice of jhana, which you're all Ajahn Ram's disciples, you know how important jhanas are. And this is what the Buddha again mentions here. That's actually in Majjhimanikaya 137. The Buddha talks about how to substitute these different kinds of equanimities and happinesses of the household life and the worldly life. You can compare it. Number 137. There's also the same case the Buddha recommends to give up the equanimity that is diversified and to go for the equanimity of the jhana. Householders, suppose a vulture, a crow or a hawk seized a piece of meat and flew away, and then vultures, crows and hawks flew up and pecked and clawed it. What do you think, householder? If that vulture, crow or hawk does not quickly let go of that piece of meat, wouldn't it incur death or deadly suffering because of that? Yes, Honorable Sir. So that's the next simile. And you may have all noticed when we have actually these objects of our sensual desires, we're always in trouble in protecting them because all these other people around us, they're also interested. But I think Perth is a burglary capital of Australia, I read somewhere. So once we have got all these nice, the latest uh, DVD player in our home and the six-channel sound system, then we have to worry that the burglars come. This is just like these crows. Now, the moment you have it, or the, or the vultures come and they try to take it away from us. Or at least maybe, I think Australia is very unusual. I think they want to reduce taxes or something. <laughs> you're, you're very fortunate here. In your country, you have the political debate whether to reduce taxes or increase um, public spending. Usually it's more like increasing taxes and cutting public spending. But say the government also might want to take away your money. Once you have got all these huge increases in your wages, then uh, the, the taxes will increase. And uh, 
I remember once as a layperson going out with one really very attractive woman, and it was such a hassle. You constantly have these people, even standing next to you, constantly have these people coming up and just trying to chat up on her. You see, the moment you have got the objects of essential desire, they always come like the vultures. Isn't there even a song, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife? Because it's just so much trouble. You always fear about that someone else comes. If you have the, the nice BMW or the nice Mercedes, in Europe you can't go to it, Italy anymore. It's just too much danger. They will steal it immediately. So you've got your car, but you can't really drive it anymore because all these vultures come and want it as well. Um. So, too venerable, so too household and noble disciple considers thus... Central pleasures have been compared to a piece of meat by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. Having seen this thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, clinging to the material things of the world utterly ceases without remainder. Householders, suppose a man took a blazing grass torch and went against the wind. What do you think, householder? If that man does not quickly let go of that blazing grass torch... Wouldn't that blazing grass, grass torch burn his hand or his arm or some other part of his body so that he might incur death or deadly suffering because of that? And, and is it not striking? Whatever is really nice, whatever we like, it, it's always harmful. For example, take food. The foods which are really nice, like the pizza I mentioned or the ice cream, it's never the healthy ones. <laughs> it's, it's always the unpleasant. We can eat as much, say, salad and... Um, whole grain um, organic rice but, but that's not really what we crave for it's the ice cream, the pizza, the, the Big Mac and I don't know but and that's always what is bad for us or smoking, I mean I feel, feel it's nice isn't it but unfortunately you get cancer and you get all these um, circulation problems you can die from it alcohol I mean, it has got these bad effects, but there's a certain nice feeling to it. But unfortunately, it's poison. <laughs> actually poisoning our body. Alcohol is a direct poison to nerve cells. And it's also a direct poison to liver cells. Some people like to take about 50% of the lethal doses of a poison and call it a day. Yeah. Call, it, call it a good night. But, but it's fascinating that all these nice things are actually poisonous or have side effects. What, what, what else is it? Even sex, you get AIDS, you get all these other diseases, you can get children. All the, all the <laughs> you get the relationships and all the troubles. All the nice things have got always these huge disadvantages. We always try to avoid it, we always try to avoid it, but you cannot really avoid it. And the moment you try to cut out these disadvantages, if you have the really fat-free pizza and so on, it doesn't taste nice anymore. So it's really fascinating. This is what the Buddha means here. There's always this blazing grass torch. You can see a little bit and it's nice to walk around, but you have to be very careful and just quickly let it go. You can have one smoke. You don't die when you smoke one cigarette, but then okay, <laughs> that's it, and you have to give up. We can have one pizza, or maybe half a pizza, but, but then we have to stop and let go of it. Um, I don't know exactly what the... My, my understanding is, as I said, that there's always this, this danger in any of the central pleasures. And that is comparable to getting burned by it. They, they burn you. That would be my understanding. What, what is your understanding? 
so you understand the wind to uh, be a metaphor for the desire, right? Right. Because yeah, I, I think I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because also the stronger the wind, the higher it burns, and the stronger the desire. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that, Lynn. I, I would agree. So the wind is kind of the the desire, which increases all this suffering. The stronger the wind, the stronger the burning. Yes, yes. I mean, this, these similes are often very deep and can t- spend a long time on reflecting on them. You can use each of them, and we can we can look whatever is our favorite desires: is it fast cars, is it food or smoking, or is it what, whatever material possessions? And we we can go through all these similes. Some work better for some; others work better better for others. For example, smoking is very clear here. There's deadly danger. You can really die from it. But say music. Music, it wouldn't work so well. Music isn't so dangerous. If you listen too, too loudly, then you can damage your ears. But if you listen in a normal volume, there's actually not much danger really in music. So one can use another simile to, to work for that. Um, Householder, suppose there were a charcoal pit deeper than a man's hide, full of glowing coals without flame or smoke. Then a man came who wanted to live and not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and two strong men seized him by both arms and dragged him towards that charcoal pit. What do you think, Householder? Would that man twist his body this way and that? Yes, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because that man knows that if he falls into that charcoal pit, he will incur death or deadly suffering because of that. There's actually this famous sutta on sun's flesh in the Nidana Sangyata. The same simile occurs there. Two strong men dragging a person to a charcoal pit of burning embers. And there it's actually explained um, by the commentary that the two strong men are the good and the bad karma, and the charcoal pit stands just for samsara in general. So this is just a very general simile on samsara in that case, where whatever we do, even our good karma keeps us in samsara. Only the meditation leading to the end of all karma finally leads to nibbana. But even normal good karma, what we call punya, keeps us still in samsara in the end. So that would be the commentary's interpretation from the nidana sangyuta, the this, this sutta on sun's flesh. But I think another interpretation I read somewhere which I like also is to take the uh, two strong men as old age and sickness and the charcoal pit as death because this is what always happens with each one of us there are two two strong men sickness and death uh, sorry sickness and old age and in the end they will just drag us into this charcoal pit we can't do anything against it and all our life we were just struggling against it to delay it a little bit just like this man he was struggling very hard to to de- get a little bit of delay, but the two men are too overpowering. They're strong, and in the end, sickness and old age is always stronger than we are, and we, we, we jump into this charcoal pit of death. That would be my understanding. If anyone has got any other inter- uh, interpretation for these two strong men and the charcoal pit, what it symbolizes, I would be very interested. Um. Householder, suppose a man dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows, and lovely lakes, and on waking he saw nothing of it. So too, Householder, noble disciple considers thus, sensual pleasures have been compared to a dream by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. And I think this is something which occurs to me now as a monk, if I think, think back of, say, all the parties I have been, 
And it's so distant, and I can't, can't even remember them. I mean, there were many of them, but I couldn't even distinguish them now. It's just like a dream. That is also a useful, important reflection on sensual pleasures. Many of our sensual pleasures, if you later look back on them, they are very, very, very weak somehow. We can hardly remember it. It was so important at the time we actually had the desire, but then after we got it, and then maybe take a couple of years and try to remember it, and it just appears just like a dream, so unsubstantial. Also, that suppose a man borrowed goods on loan, a fancy carriage and fine jeweled earrings, and proceeded and surrounded by those borrowed goods, he went to the marketplace. Then people seeing him would say, Sirs, that is a rich man. That is how the rich enjoy their wealth. Then the owners, whenever they saw him, would take back their things. What do you think, householder? Would that be enough for that man to become dejected? Yes, venerable sir, why is that? Because the owners took back their things. And so it is with all our possessions. We will never know. Even our partner, suddenly he may file for divorce or run away with someone else. Or with our possessions, we talked about the burglary. We have it all, but we never know when the burglars walk in. And, and in the very end, we have to leave them when we die ourselves. So whatever we have on sensual pleasures, we can never really rely on it. It's just like borrowed goods. You, you never know. You have this mortgage on your house, and suddenly maybe you lose your job, you can't pay the, the mortgage anymore, and then your house is gone. You just sell it. So similar sensual pleasures, we, we, we can never be sure that we can hold them. The, own, the owner's nature, in a sense. All these things, even our own body is owned by nature. We do not know. Even our own body is just, just borrowed. We do not know when actually they, do they take it. When do the owner, when, when is the owner nature coming and is taking it away from us? Okay. Householder, suppose there were a dense grove not far from some village or town within which there was a tree laden with fruit, but none of its fruit had fallen to the ground. Then a man came needing fruit, seeking fruit, wandering in search of fruit, and he entered the grove and saw the tree laden with fruit. Thereupon he thought, this tree is laden with fruit, but none of its fruit has fallen to the ground. I know how to climb a tree, so let me climb this tree, eat as much fruit as I want and fill my bag. And he did so. Then a second man comes, also wanting to get some fruits, but unfortunately he can't actually climb trees. So he decides to cut down the tree and again eat as much as he likes after he has cut it down and take the rest away. And he did so. What do you think, householder? If that first man who had climbed the tree doesn't come down quickly when the tree falls, wouldn't he break his hand or his foot or some other part of his body so that he might incur death or deadly suffering because of that? Yes, Wunderbar, sir. And that's another, another thing of sensuality. We always infringe on each other, even without bad intention. The point here, in my understanding, is this second person, he has got no bad intention. He doesn't want to harm the first person. All he wants is he wants the fruits. <laughs> he's hungry and wants his got his fruits. And the only way to get it is just cutting it down. And so it's generally in life. Maybe say we have a big party, loud music, and other people suffer from the loud music. We, we do not want to harm or disturb them, but it's just in the nature and the essential world when we engage in our normal activities, there tends to be friction. We tend to harm other people. You, know, you have this joy trip. People have a fast car and they go and then they have an accident and then someone completely innocent might be harmed. They didn't have any bad intention. They just wanted to really drive their car a little bit fast and enjoy it. But there's always this kind of uh, interaction with friction in the central world. You cannot really avoid it. And that is 
what in my opinion is meant by this simile. Or cutting down trees like with the yeah. So too, household, a noble disciple considers thus, sensual pleasures have been compared to a fruit tree by the Blessed One. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. Having seen this thus, as it actually is, with proper wisdom, he avoids the equanimity that is diversified, based on diversity, and develops the equanimity that is unified, based on unity, where clinging to the material things of the world utterly ceases without remainder. Having arrived at that supreme mindfulness whose purity is due to equanimity, that is again the fourth jhana. This is why I'm sure that the Buddha means by this term, the equanimity based on unity, that he means fourth jhana, because the terms here, um, supreme mindfulness whose purity is due to equanimity, that's a technical expression for the equanimity coming from fourth jhana. This noble disciple recollects his manifold past lives and all the birth up to uh, remembering all the uh, births through several eons. Thus, with the aspects in particular, he recollects his manifold past lives. Having arrived at that same supreme mindfulness whose purity is due to equanimity, with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, this noble disciple sees beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and he understands how beings pass on according to their actions. So again, the Buddha is now moving into very high dhammas. It's a person who is fourth jhana. He's also talking about the noble disciple who has seen things as they actually are. So it seems that even stream entry is implied here already, maybe caused by these reflections. So sometimes we have to be careful if we read suttas. Already the Buddha is at very high dhammas. He seems to be talking about a sotapanna who has got fourth jhana and who is able now to attain these two highest special knowledges of recollecting past lives and the divine eye of seeing beings uh, reappear according to their karma. Having arrived at that supreme mindfulness whose purity is due to equanimity, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, this noble disciple here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. That is one of the stock descriptions for the attainment of full enlightenment, Abahata. The taints here... Ajahn often quotes them outflows, asavas, but the Bodhi's translation is taints. So this is the attainment of arahata, full enlightenment. At this point, householder, the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline has been achieved entirely and in all ways. What do you think, householder? Do you see in yourself any cutting off of affairs like this cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline when it is achieved entirely and in all ways? Venerable sir, who am I that I should possess any cutting off of affairs entirely and in all ways like that in the noble one's discipline? I am far indeed, Venerable sir, from the cutting off of affairs in the noble one's discipline when it has been achieved entirely and in all ways. We can notice here this remarkable change. One of his problems was arrogance, spiteful scolding. And now he admits himself, I am far indeed, Venerable sir. Or who am I that I should possess? It's really amazing how the Buddha turned the person around. He becomes so humble, so meek, so, so smooth now, so self-effacing. For Venerable Sir, though the wanderers of other sects are not thoroughbreds, we imagined that they are thoroughbreds. We fed them the food of thoroughbreds. We set them in the place of thoroughbreds. 
But though the bhikkhus are thoroughbreds, we imagine that they are not thoroughbreds. We fed them the food of those who are not thoroughbreds. We set them in the place of those who are not thoroughbreds. Thoroughbred is here a kind of metaphorical impression, uh, expression for people who have really attained. The thoroughbred cult, the Buddha uses this for, um, for the arahant even. So thoroughbred means an enlightened person. But now, Venerable Sirs, as the wanderers of other sects are not thoroughbreds, we shall understand that they are not. We shall feed them the food of those who are not thoroughbreds. We shall set them in the place of those who are not thoroughbreds. But it seems there are still some traces of his spiteful scolding and anger, because one of the first things he thinks about now is that he shouldn't really give so much donations anymore to the people he formerly had faith on. But as the bhikkhus are thoroughbreds, we shall feed them the food of thoroughbreds and give them the place of thoroughbreds. Venerable Sir, the Blessed One has inspired in me love for recluses, confidence in recluses, reverence for recluses. Magnificent Master Gotama, magnificent Master Gotama. Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge and to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of Bhikkhus. From today, let Master Gotama remember me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for life. Okay, yeah. Thank you for listening so patiently all the time. Are there, are there any more questions? Exactly 4.30. <laughs> Who told me it's up to 4.30? People started leaving already. I felt a little bit, I felt a little bit uh, worried that I'm getting straining too much. Okay, 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 okay. I wasn't arrogant or anything in, in continuing too long. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, any questions maybe or comments? Any new fascinating interpretations of the similes? Can you still enjoy your pizza after that sutta reading? <laughs> In a sense, you can say this, these first ones are more like the practice of virtue, but when the Buddha starts talking about these similes, that's actually the practice of samadhi, because the samadhi is like purifying the mind of, of sensuality. So these kind of similes are, are going beyond just the practice of virtue. That is really getting people to the attainment of jhanas, getting them to attain samadhi. And they may, they may be a little bit more monkish, but... Uh, A uh, hundred, yeah, one second. Uh, so it's in the Matrimanikaya. Uh, 137. Number 137. Yeah. Here, because by depending and relying on the six kinds of joy based on renunciation, abandon and surmount the six kinds of joy based on the household life. By depending and relying on the six kinds of grief based on renunciation, abandon and surmount the six kinds of grief based on the household life. By depending and relying on the six kinds of equanimity based on renunciation, abandon and surmount the six kinds of equanimity based on the household life. And then after that, um, here because by depending and relying on equanimity that is unified based on unity, Abandon and surmount equanimity that is diversified, based on diversity. 
And then by depending and relying on non-identification, abandon and surmount equanimity that is unified. So I, I think I can't really go into detail. That's quite a pithy sutta itself. It would take another one and a half hours. But 137, Salayat and the exposition of the sixfold base. It's actually a very good sutta. But I think this one I just read out, or there may be more for monks, but I think we, we can skillfully use, if ever we have any problems, say, if we have any attachments, maybe we want to give up smoking, or we, we do have a problem with overweight or whatever. There are some central pleasures where we feel that we want to, to deal with them and uh, overcome them. Then we can just go through this simile and see whatever fits best. If, for example, smoking, the second one with this blazing grass torch, you just hurt yourself unless you let go. We can just reflect on this danger in smoking. Or we can reflect on the satisfaction. Does it ever, ever give any real satisfaction? Or, or, or the, the dream aspect. If I'm a smoker, how many sm cigarettes have I smoked already? How, how, what, what can I actually even, even remember of all this niceness? There were so many cigarettes, but it's just like a dream. I, I cannot really remember them even anymore. So we, we can just skillfully use whatever reflection is most suitable for our personal case to overcome certain desires which we find uh, unhelpful or unwholesome even in lay life. Obviously, usually as a lay person, you don't try to give up centrally completely, but, but there are always kind of central desires, which may, for example, some central desires may make us offend our five precepts. That's usually one of the reasons when we slip into a kind of uh, breaking our precepts, because there's some desire to get something. We can't get it within the five precepts. And then we can just use these reflections to deal with this kind of desire. We can also use, you know, the, I'm practicing the way to the abandoning and cutting off of those fetters because I, of which I might break this precept. So I think there are many useful things even for, for lay life here. Any more? Yeah, yeah, Eddie. Oh, yes, very right. The, the teaching always, yeah, yes. Yeah, right, right. You, you have to practice right where you are. Don't try to... Right. Right, right, right. No, no I didn't want to say you shouldn't eat pizza anymore. <laughs> please, please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> right, right. Right, right. Yes, yes. Right, right. But thank you for that comment, Eddie. I fully agree it's a gradual training, and we have to go step by step. And this is why I mentioned in this sutta the Buddha goes into very, very deep dhammas. For example, the person, this equanimity based on unity, that is fourth jhana. So we have to realize that uh, it might take a long time to actually reach this stage, and we start off with the more simple one, abandoning, just, just trying to lessen arrogance. Arrogance is a very subtle fetter. Only the arahant overcomes it fully. Conceit. Yes, yes. We have to be very careful not to to try to hurry uh, two steps ahead of ourselves. We have to practice right where we are. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for that. It, it's not that you have to immediately give it away, but we start off with these reflections. And then this will just gradually reduce these desires. It doesn't mean that we have to eliminate the desire at one step. 
Exactly. Each time you succumb to a sensual desire, then that underlying tendency for that desire will increase. But each time you are able to actually let go and not succumb, in, especially in combination with right reflection, if one just suppresses it or something, then it might not work so well. But, but if you are supported by wisdom or understanding, if you have a good reason and we understand why we actually reject this desire, then the underlying tendency is reduced. Just a very little bit, but each time a very little bit means it slowly becomes less. And that is always the most important thing, like you mentioned, Eddie, that we're moving in the right direction. It's not so important where are we already, how far in absolute terms. It's not so important how quickly we move, but the crucial thing is that we're just moving into the right direction. And as long as we are doing that, we will always reach the goal at some stage. But thank you for that, Lynn. I fully agree. Yeah, yeah Rodney. Pardon the word? Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, you won't present divorce, divorce here as a kind of uh, renunciation. I, I think that's not the case. You see, attachment, people misunderstand attachment. Attachment is not only something I like, but I'm also attached to the things I don't like. The craving has got this double aspect. And the, the attachment by hate or dislike can be just as strong as by, by, by liking. So if you have a really ugly divorce, and there's a lot of hate left, it's quite likely that you come together in the next life because the attachment is there. This again, like, like the middle way. One, one extreme is like this strong uh, loving attachment having a strong kind of, of desire and infatuation. The other extreme would be having a hate. This is why you sometimes talk about love-hate relationships. It can so easily flip from one into the other, but the extremes are actually close to each other. But genuine detachment or equanimity, that is something much more difficult. That is the middle way between these two, abandoning both. So just going into hate, that, that, that doesn't work. Then the attachment is still there. <laughs> if, you can, if you can manage to just eat one eighth piece of the pizza and be happy with that, that might be the Machima Patibada. Exactly. They can flip into each other so quickly. It's very easy to move from love to hate, but it's very difficult to move from either love or hate to genuine detachment and equanimity. But again, that is uh, the long path of the middle way. Right, we move inwards to the fourth jhana. Yes, Find, finally, only with samadhi you can really get rid of these things. This is what Ajahn always emphasizes. Unless one has got a certain happiness. People think, no, okay, you have to give up all these sensual pleasures, but if you don't know anything better, any kind of wholesome pleasure, then it sounds so horrible. We feel like we are deprived of all the pleasant things in life when I have to give that up. But that's not the case. The way of the, the Buddha's teaching, that is in this other sutta I mentioned, 137. You give up the joy of the household life based on the joy of renunciation. 
that means your samadhi is getting better and you get all this pleasure. And then it doesn't really matter so much what you eat or whether you smoke or drink or, or this other kind of uh, uh, movies or music. Once a person has got his samadhi, he gets so much happiness out of that, they can easily let go of these other pleasures. But the Buddha in this sutta isn't talking so much on it. This is more like the, the stick, just like more these negative reflections. But we have to add this up from other suttas. At the same time, one develops kind of wholesome joy. And then it's much easier to give up. Okay, shall we finish off? Thank you for listening so patiently. <laughs>